In the days of the Wild West, there was a lone cowboy who was making his way down a desert road, and he came upon an Indian who was lying on the ground uh, with concentrated gaze, his ear firmly pressed uh, against the ground. And as the cowboy observed, the Indian was muttering, and he said, um, stagecoach, three people inside, two men, one woman, four horses, three dapple gray, and one black. Well, the cowboy was amazed, and he said, Wow, partner, you can figure all that out just by putting your ear against the ground? And the Indian looked up, and he said, um, No, stagecoach run over me 30 minutes ago. <laughs> when I heard that story, it made me think a little bit of what it's like to raise children. <laughs> Now, if you've raised kids, you know what it's like to, from time to time, at least feel like lying on the floor in the fetal position, aimlessly muttering, three kids, wet diapers, muddy feet, messy house, dirty dishes, broken furniture, busy schedule, and feeling like you just got run over by a stagecoach. I'm convinced that raising kids is the hardest or one of the hardest things to do in all of life uh, that God has designed. If they were given to us as a blank canvas and we had the ability to just mold them, shape them, or paint them into whatever form or mold that we wanted, it would be easier than it is. But that's not the case. They come to us preloaded with a whole set of things already downloaded within their little hearts and bodies. They have a personality, a disposition. They have strengths and weaknesses. They have struggles, rebellions, and most of all, a self-will. <laughs> We've been given, on top of that or in spite of that, the responsibility and the call to raise them, to instruct them, to invest in them, and to lead them and cultivate life in them and doing all that we can to prepare them to be successful in a fallen and broken world. That's the commission that's been given to us by God. Now last week in our Bible study, we began looking at the transition between David's reign, him being king, and that of his son Solomon. And we saw that he, that, that we, we saw in that study, are faced with the reality that we have to be responsible not just for what we have in our own lives to deal with and in our world, but part of that is also to be given to the generation that is up and coming to prepare them also for theirs. And we saw that that's an area where David greatly failed. He was a terrible father and that he didn't take much time to invest in his kids the things that were there. He was absent in preparing his sons. And thus, in these first two chapters of 1 Kings, we get a great contrast given to us by the Holy Spirit. In one chapter, we saw one son of David who turned out to be a train wreck. And then we saw another one who will turn out much different. He'll be a train wreck too in a different way. But in spite of the train wreck, he will also be unique beyond the uh, beyond the uniqueness of anyone that's ever lived before, the man Solomon. And so we learn from them as we look at them some things that we as parents can do or pray in or apply to our children's lives that we might do our best to prepare them for success. We learned last week what not to do as we looked at Adonijah. 
And his whole life can be summed up by a quote given by Edmund Burke, and that is this, that all it takes for evil to persist is for good men to do nothing. And that's exactly what could be written over the life of Adonijah. Nothing was done. Nothing was taught. There was no discipline given, no adjustment in his character or his nature, and thus evil persisted in his life. He started that way, he lived that way, and ultimately uh, we will see tonight that he will die that way. Solomon, on the other hand, by the providence of God and not necessarily the parentage of David, he had an edge on Adonijah. So what was it? What was it about Solomon that Adonijah didn't have that made him turn out differently? And that's what we look at now as we look at chapter 2. Now let's, for the sake of... uh, context and catch up, read the first verses of chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. The first thing that we observed about Solomon last week is that he was a man who was spiritually attached. He was brought up in the things of God, not necessarily by David, but by Nathan the prophet who took him from birth, gave him a name, Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord, and taught him, trained him, and cultivated in him godly things, interceding for him even into his late teen years when the rebellion of Adonijah would come up. And we saw that he was connected uh, to godly things. And we talked about the importance of doing that for our children, to seeing that church is not foreign to them. That spiritual things are not the abnormal, but the normal in their lives, and that the people of God uh, are familiar to them. The second thing is that he was scripturally admonished. We see here in these dying days of David, he is at this point 70 years old. And he has been king over the land for now 40 years. And in that time of being king, David has an education. He understands war, he understands politics, foreign and domestic relations. He understands people and personalities, finance and taxation, economy, how to run a government, how to balance responsibilities, all things that David learned without a teacher, by the way, while he was being brought up and forged in the furnace of affliction by the Lord himself. Now contrast that with his son, Solomon, at this point in his late teenage years. David on his deathbed seeking to impart some last day's wisdom to his son who will now be taking over for him who knows absolutely nothing. He's being thrown into something that's clearly over his head and what David now is going to give to him is everything that he can in the few moments that he has left before he's going to die. Now if I was Solomon, I would be there with notepad in hand. What are you going to say to me? How do I do this thing? How do you deal with people and problems and issues that deal with kingdoms? And I'm just a youth. What do I do? And I would expect that the discourse that David would give would take up chapter after chapter after chapter. But really it doesn't. 
The bulk of what David has to say is just really a paragraph, a couple of phrases, really. And what he tells him is, son, take heed to the word of God. Give yourself to the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, and the testimonies of God that were written to you in the law of Moses. That if you want to know how to run a kingdom, if you want to know how to balance responsibilities, if you want to know how to deal with all of the various tenets and things that go into kingdom business or life itself, then give yourself to God's word in its totality, in its completion. If you want to know how to do something, the answer is go to the Bible. If an issue comes up and you don't know what it is, go to the Bible. Go to God and see what he has to say to it. If a day comes, son, where two mothers come to you and they're contesting over who the real mother is, go to the Bible. And there you'll see that time after time, mother after mother willing to risk her life to spare the life of her son, you'll know who the mother is. Go to the Bible. And it's the counsel that David gives to Solomon, the best counsel that he can. And here's why. Because it works. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is living and powerful. And that it's sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and that it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word of God is alive. This isn't a dead book that you find on a library shelf with white paper and black and red ink. But rather the blood of Jesus Christ and the eternal spirit of God pulsates through the pages of this book. And heaven and earth will pass before one word of it ever does. And it accomplishes what God pleases. That's the promise given in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. Is that my word that goes forth from my mouth will accomplish what I please and it will prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. If God said it, God will do it. And therefore, it is the most powerful substance that exists in all of the universe. And it's the most important thing that any one of us can possess or pass on to our children. And if David gave his son one thing here, he gave him the best thing. Because he pointed him to the word of God. He says in verses 3 and 4, two things that will be a result of Solomon's heeding the word of God. He says, first of all, at the end of verse 3, he says that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That promise is reiterated three times in the Bible. Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, when Moses was on his deathbed declaring to Joshua what he should do, said the same thing. Here, David says it to his son Solomon. And it's written to all of us in Psalm chapter 1. That blessed is the man whose counsels come from the word of God and that he meditates in them day and night. He finishes by saying, whatsoever he does will prosper. And there's truth in it. As we give ourselves to the word of God, making it the lens through which we see life in the world, there is a prosperity that comes uh, with that that is unmatched and unparalleled by anything else. But then there's a second thing he says that will happen in verse 4 if you give yourself to the word of God. He says that the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me saying if your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And here's what that is. Is that if you son, and this is conditional, if you give yourself to the word and to obey its statutes, precepts, testimonies, judgments, then God's greater purpose for your life will also be fulfilled. See, God has two things that he's working in the lives of his people simultaneously. One is what he's doing right now in our lifetime. And the other is where our lifetime fits in the grand scheme of his grand and glorious plan. And both of those things are paramount, important. 
We want to do well in our life now, but we also want to serve the purpose that God has for us eternally. And that's what David is pointing to Solomon here. He's saying, Solomon, it's not just about what you do in your life and the prosperity that you experience, but God has a bigger plan. And you giving heed to his word and living in it is going to see that plan brought to fruition. It's interesting to me that this is a conditional promise. That if you walk in these things, then God will establish the word that he spoke. I believe that there are conditional promises that are given. There are some absolutes, but there are some that are conditional. God's a parent. He's a father. And as any father or any parent knows, there are conditional blessings that we give to our kids. If they're able to possess it, if they're able to handle the things that we want to bless them with, then it's our desire and our pleasure to bless them and give. But if they cannot handle it because they walk in disobedience or immaturity or they're harmful to themselves in some way, then there's certain things that we can't do in their lives because they'll use what we give them to harm themselves or destroy their lives. And I'll tell you, there's nothing more grievous to a parent than to not be able to bless their kids the way that they want to. And so David is admonishing Solomon through the scripture here, saying, obey the things of God. There are uh, two stories that are etched in my mind um, from my past. One of them, and I've mentioned this name before, if you've been around for a while, you've heard it, is a woman by the name of Beatrice Wolfe. She grew up in poverty in the suburbs of Rochester, and uh, on on a last-ditch whim back in the... uh, earlier part of the last century, her husband, who had just a few dollars left to his name, bought some stock in a startup company called Xerox. And they went from rags to riches in a good way because people that go from rags to riches, in, from poverty to, 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 to great wealth, a lot of times they know how to uh, handle that type of wealth. And they did. They were frugal. But the thing that always bothered me was my father told me about her will. He was the executor of her will. He said she didn't leave a dime to any of her kids. She donated all of it to a hospital and wouldn't give them any of it because she didn't trust them with it. And that always bothered me my whole life. It's like, how could any parent do that? You know, I put myself in, the, in, the, in the, you know, the seat of her kids and I don't know who they are or what they were or anything, but it always bothered me. The other story was a woman I worked for. Her name was Savi. She, had, uh, she was from India. We called her husband the doctor because we couldn't pronounce his name. And we worked for her. We did a, a whole house renovation. And on one occasion, we were conversing with her about her family. And she said the same thing. People of great wealth. And she said, we're not leaving any of it to our kids. And they already know it. We'll pay for their education. And that's it. Our money will be donated somewhere else when we die. And I, inside, I go, are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? Why wouldn't you set your kids up if you have the ability to do it? Now, the Jewish people are known for this. We did a lot of work in the city in the past. And there's a lot of what they call old money in the city. And that is people that are filthy, filthy rich. Not because of anything they've necessarily done. But because of wealth that's been handed down from generation to generation to generation. And then built upon and then handed down and onward and onward the cycle goes. They call that old money. It's something that uh, the Jewish people are famous for. But I think that there's a different form of wealth, a higher form of wealth that's been committed to you and me. It isn't money that we make or an inheritance that we leave to our kids, but rather it's the spiritual truth 
that's cultivated and worked out through our lives as we come closer and closer to knowing God through his word. If we hand that down to our kids, what we've given them is greater than any temporal earthly inheritance that ever will exist. Any physical thing that we give to our kids will ultimately perish with them, whether they keep it and hand it down or whether they squander it and waste it. But the truth that we give them that is eternal, that they then can build on and pass on to their children, that's the true wealth. And that's what David passed on to Solomon here. God help us to see what we have and then to pass it on. But listen, you can't pass along what you don't have. David, in all of his failings, had it. And he passed it on to Solomon. Number three, we see that Solomon was a man who was not just uh, spiritually attached and scripturally admonished, but he was also socially adjusted. Look at at, uh, verse five with me. David goes on to talk to Solomon now, and he said, Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. Three things that David accuses Joab here. He says, first of all, what he did to me. What did he do to David? He killed Absalom, his son. Now, granted, Absalom was guilty and deserving of death, but David specifically asked that he not be killed, that he be dealt with in a different way. But Joab violated the will of David, and he killed Absalom, his son, and it wrecked David. It broke his heart that that happened. Two other things, he killed Abner, the son of Ner, because uh, of political and and, uh, personal reasons, and also the same for Amasa, to hold on to a position that he held as the general of David's army. And so he says, you know what he did? He shed the blood of war in peacetime, and he put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, he said, because of what Joab did, he says, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down uh, to the grave in peace. Now, Joab was fiercely loyal to David when it was convenient for him, and he was occasionally even spiritual. What his true colors were under the surface is that he was self-willed and he had a self preservation complex that trumped his loyalty to David and his spirituality towards God. He was willing to, if he needed to, shed innocent blood to hold on to his position or to maintain his cause and control outcomes. Now, David was in a predicament. He could not remove Joab from his position for two reasons. Number one, David made a promise early on in his reign. He said, whoever gets me Jerusalem... It was overtaken by the Jebusites at the time. But whoever takes it, David said, he will be my chief and general. And it was Joab who took it. And so David gave him a position under oath. And David wasn't a man that violated an oath that he had. The other reason that David could not remove Joab from his position without consequence is that Joab was one of only a few people who knew the depths of what David did with Bathsheba and Uriah. Do you remember that it was a letter written from David delivered to Joab that was the death note of Uriah? That was Joab who knew it. And so David's hands were tied in a sense. But he knew that Joab was deserving of death, but even greater than that, why he's passing this word of instruction onto Solomon now is because he knows that Solomon, as a young man coming into this position, that it will be detrimental for him if Joab 
is an influence in Israel uh, any longer. The problem with Joab was this, and why uh, David was admonishing him to, 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 to remove Joab, is that Joab was a man who was unwilling to submit to God-given authority. And he's the picture of the person who's unwilling to submit to God-given authority. There is, in this world, in this life, by the design of God, an unbreakable bond between submission and authority. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus was uh, sought out by a centurion who had a servant who was sick. And he wanted that servant made well. And so he sent messengers to find Jesus to see if Jesus would come and heal this sick servant of the centurion. And so Jesus is on his way to the centurion's house. Some people, some Jewish men that were there said, this guy's worth it, Jesus, you should go. So Jesus goes. And as he's going, some of the other servants come out of the house and they said, hey, our master says that he's not worthy that you should come into his house. And his message to you is this, that he is a man under authority and that he has some under him and he says to them, go and they go and to them come that he comes. And that he himself is also a man under authority and that he knows who you are. And that if you just speak the word, the servant will be healed. Now, many people read that and they say, well, what do peas have to do with carrots? In other words, what does that whole blurb about authority and servants have to do with Jesus being able to speak a word? Here's what that centurion was saying. He was saying, I understand how authority works. I have authority. And the reason I have authority is because of who I'm submitted to. I represent Caesar, the most powerful man in the world, in the worldly kingdom. And therefore, when I speak, people respond, not because of who I am, but because of who I bow down to. What he was saying to Jesus is, I know who you are, and I know what throne you bend the knee at. And therefore, if you just speak the word, you'll have the authority to heal my servant. Jesus commended that man's faith. He said, I've not seen faith like this, not even in Israel, because he understood the relationship between submission and authority. You cannot have authority unless you are submissive. That's just the way it works. If you're not submitted to an authority in your life, then you will have no authority over your life, you know, in the realm that you need to have it. That's just the design that God has. David was a man who was under authority. Other than the incident with Uriah, you never see David using his position, power, or crown to fulfill his own purposes, even when it was in his best interest to do it. Shimei on the adjacent hill, throwing rocks and cursing King David. One of the servants said, who does he think he is? Let me kill him. And David said, no. Maybe God's put it in his heart to curse. He was submitted to God. And thus he had authority over men. But Joab was a man who was not submitted to the authority that was in his life. And David is giving warning to Solomon, beware of people that will not submit to God-given authority. Because when it's in their best interest, they will put a knife in your back. So he warns him concerning uh, Joab. If a person is unwilling to submit to God-given authority, and that includes governments and local uh, principalities, because the Bible tells us that that's what we're to be in submission to. And that was written by Paul, who was submitted to Caesar, who was the most wicked governor and emperor of all time, killing Christians baselessly. But if a person isn't submitted to God-given authority, then they will violate God's authority. If they won't submit to whom God has put over them, then they won't submit to God who is over them either. And that becomes dangerous when it comes close to our lives. Think about it in the context of a spouse that you're choosing. 
or someone that you're going to work for or work with in a partnership. You don't want to be associated with someone who doesn't know authority and how to submit to it. So important, so paramount. And Solomon passes this on, I'm sorry, David passes this on uh, to him. Then he goes on to talk about a man named Barzillai in verse 7. He says, but show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. Now, you recall the story. Barzillai uh, met David. He gave him an abundance of food and provisions and took care of him. And then when David, on the way back, asked Barzillai, I said, hey, move to Jerusalem. I want you close to me. You're a good man. Barzillai said, ah, I'm 80 years old. I can't see anymore. I can barely taste food. I'm an old man. I just want to live here in peace. But you know what? If you want to do something good, do it for my sons. You know, but let me be. David says, you know what? You're a good man. You're not in it for yourself. You've shown that you'll have nobility when there's nothing in it for you. And that's a good man. And so David looks now at Solomon and he says, hey, give these guys a pension. That's what that means, to eat at your table continually. Give these guys. These are the kind of guys that you want around you. The kind of people that will do what's noble when there's nothing in it for them. Then, number three, he says in verse eight now, he deals with Shimei. Remember the guy who threw the rocks and cursed? It says, and see, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahanaim. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man, and you know what you ought to do to him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave now uh, with blood. Shimei was a Benjamite, which means that he was in the family of Saul. We're also told that he was a servant of Saul, that he held a position of honor in Solomon's uh, regime at that time. And when David was fleeing from Absalom, Shimei, throwing the rocks and cursing, uh, you know, called David a man of blood. That wasn't true. David was a warrior, but he wasn't a man of murder. He called him a cruel man and, and cursed him with a malicious curse, David says. But then when David was brought back to Jerusalem and Absalom's rebellion was quenched and squashed, Shimei came to David and he said, hey, buddy, no hard feelings. Let bygones be bygones. You know, let's bury the hatchet. You know, I was just joking, you know, when when that whole thing was going, please let me live. And David gave him a pardon. He said, okay, I, I will have mercy on you. I will not put you to death with the swords. What's going on here? You ever seen a chameleon before? Those lizards that have the supernatural ability to conform to whatever background or setting they are in. If you set them with a green backdrop, they'll have a green color. If you put them somewhere brown or even yellow, they'll turn the color of their background so as to defend themselves from predators. They'll even do it if they're half in the sun and half in the shade. Half of them will take the color that is in the sun and the other half that's in the shade. They'll do whatever they have to do to not be seen to preserve themselves. That's what Shimei is. He's a chameleon of a man. He changes color to match whatever setting he's in, and he has no personal convictions of his own. He goes with whatever the popular sentiment is at the time, and he'll conform to that whatever it is. He's the guy that will come to church on Wednesday nights and raise his hands and sing at the top of his lungs to God because that's what's happening in the setting he's in. But then on Friday night, he'll do a keg stand and put the lampshade on his head 
as he celebrates with a totally different type of people in a totally different world and way. And he'll have no conviction about it. But he'll conform to whatever type of setting he's in, whatever's best for him. And here's the message that David is giving to Solomon. Beware of people that have no convictions, that don't stand upon something themselves, but will go along with everyone else. They'll love you when things are going well for you, but they'll curse you and hate you when things are not. And that's not the kind of person you want within your realm, and you should remove him from you. What's the point of these uh, counsels that David is giving to Solomon here uh, in, in the context of him being socially adjusted and prepared to deal with people and personalities? Here it is. We Christians have an inherent vulnerability, and that is that we are a naive people. And, and some of that is kind of by design. You know, we're supposed to be as harmless as serpents. And we're supposed to love unconditionally. And sometimes unconditional love and all, all those kind of things cause us to be naive and to not ever inspect or reflect upon someone's character or the motivation behind what they're doing. If someone says, praise the Lord, we let all guard down and they're in in our book. We say, oh, they're a Christian. They're just like me. Of course I'm going to buy this car. This is the Lord. They're a believer. They're a brother. And we have this naivety about us because we're Christians. Now, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7. And it's the verse that is often quoted maliciously against us. He said, judge not lest ye be judged. Have you ever heard that word? Have you ever been in a conversation with someone about the things of God and you talk about their life or their lifestyle and they'll look back at you and say, hey, judge not lest ye be judged. Didn't Jesus say that? Yeah, Jesus said that. But the word judge that Jesus uses there is the word in the Greek, it's the word krino. What that word means is to judge unto final condemnation. That is to set a sentence upon someone that they are hellbound and there's nothing that will ever change about that. That you are condemned by God forever. You can't do that. Because you don't know if God's going to reach into their heart and do a work and they'll be saved or give their lives to Christ. You can't know what's going to happen in someone's future, so you cannot judge. What a person who says, judge not, lest you be judged, what they won't quote for you is what Jesus said just a few verses later, uh, Matthew chapter 7, same chapter, uh, but in verse 15, he said this. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them or discern them or judge them. In the same chapter that Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged unto final condemnation, he says, you better judge with a discernment of understanding and knowing who it is that you're talking to and where it is that they stand. There are times that we need to be discerning as Christians, that we need to judge not unto condemnation, but unto identification. If you were driving a car that you were hoping to purchase, and as you were driving it, it was sputtering along, the check engine light came on, it was wobbling at a certain speed, you would come back to the car dealer and he'd say, so hey, what do you think? And you'd say, that car's a piece of junk. And he would say, hey, judge not, lest you be judged. You would look at him and say, that's ridiculous. I drove the car. It's a piece of junk. 
What? You're evaluating what you experience, what you're seeing and knowing. You're not judging the thing. You're inspecting it. Same thing if you went to a restaurant and you sat down and you had a meal and you ate something and you knew that there was something rotten that got put into that, that dish. And the server came over and you said, this is horrible. I don't, what in the world is this? And she looked at you and said, hey, judge not lest you be judged. Who do you think you are? Aren't you supposed to be a Christian? No, look, you tasted it, and it wasn't what it was supposed to be. And as Christians, that's what we're supposed to do. We have to know the difference between judging and discerning, and we must be a discerning people. And we must teach our kids. We must equip them to understand the dynamics of the world that they are growing up in and that there are chameleons. There are people that will conform to whatever they need to to get what they want from you. Especially important as they're choosing mates or careers or jobs or colleges or friends that we speak into their lives and we educate them concerning people and the way human nature works. So important. And David equips him. He is socially uh, adjusted. The fourth thing that we see, and it takes up the rest of the chapter back in 1 Kings chapter 2, is not so much something that Solomon was taught as much as it was something that he did. And that is that he had sound authority. Um, We'll see how this applies to us as parents and as people. But notice with me in verse 10. It says, so David rested with his fathers. That is that he died. And he was buried in the city of David. And the period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron. And in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. Now we're told in an earlier passage that David began to reign when he was 30 years old. So if he began when he was 30 and he reigned 40 years, then that puts him at 70 when he passes off the scene. And so relatively young for a man of that age, but like we said last week, many, many miles uh, on that man uh, by the time that he died. It's interesting to me to, to realize that David was 30 years old when he began to reign. That's a number of great significance in the Bible. Uh, the priests, the Levites, would begin serving their course in the tabernacle at the age of 30. Joseph the son of Jacob, was 30 years old when he attained his position in Egypt and God began to use his life. David was 30 when God began uh, to use him. Most scholars believe that Ezekiel, the the prophet, was uh, 30 years old at the time he began his ministry. Jesus was 30 years old at the time that the Spirit fell on him and his ministry started. And that's not to say that you have to be 30 years old to be used of God. But it does seem as though in the Bible that there's something about that age that God looks at those that are under 30 as those that are learning, training, developing, growing. And he looks at those that are over 30 as those that are in the fruit-bearing stage of their life that also have the responsibility to invest in those that are under 30. So if you're under 30 here tonight, then use this time to grow, to listen, to cultivate and glean what you can from an older, wiser generation. And if you're over 30 in here tonight, then aside from everything else you do, make it a part of your heart and your life to invest in those whose lives are under the age of 30, that they also might bear uh, fruit as well. Verse 12, then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. Now that's a subtitle uh, that's going to point to what happens next. Why was King Solomon's kingdom firmly established, he goes on to say. He says, now Adonijah, remember him? The son of Haggith came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So she said, do you come peaceably? She has reason to be concerned. 
And he said, peaceably. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, say it. I hear suspicion in her voice. Then he said, you know (coughs) that the kingdom was mine. And all Israel had set their expectations on me that I should reign. Now that's a lie. Self-inflated. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's for, for it was his from the Lord. Now, I ask one petition of you. Do not deny me. And she said to him, say it. Second time she says that. I like her. Then he said, please speak to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite as wife. Now, remember Abishag? That was David's hot water bag from chapter 1. Remember, he couldn't get warm, and so they hired her to lay by him to keep him warm. That's who Abishag was. It tells us that she was beautiful, and now Adonijah wants her as a wife. So Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. Now, I believe fully that there was a half smile in the heart of Bathsheba as she said this because she knew exactly what Adonijah was up to and she knew exactly what the outcome would be. And so verse 19, Bathsheba therefore went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and he bowed down to her and sat down on his throne and had a throne set for the king's mother. So she sat at his right hand. Now I love that verse, just parenthetically for one moment. That when Bathsheba came, she was so highly honored and esteemed By Solomon, that he didn't just give heed to what she said, but he said, hey, pull up another throne. And mom, you sit here with me. And I find that there's some symbolism in that to the type of man that Solomon was. That he wasn't the type that would say, well, here I am now, I'm the king, and so bow down and kiss my ring. But rather he had a deep honor and respect for his mother, so much so that he would consult her for some of the decisions that he would make. The side-by-side throne indicated that he would obtain counsel from his mother. Now that's significant, and here's why. The first commandment that deals with man's relationship with man is honor your father and your mother. The word honor is kabod. It means give glory or weight or substance to what your parents can bring to you. It's a command that we have. God wants us to honor our parents, to give weight to their experience and their substance. We see Solomon doing that here. He wants to listen to his mother. She's been doing this a long time. She was by David's side for many years. She's got experience in people and things, and Solomon is all the more willing to listen to what she has to say within his life. Earlier, I talked to you about Beatrice Wolf and and Savi and the doctor who didn't want to leave anything to their kids. Part of the reason for that uh, lack of desire is that they were afraid that their kids would squander what they had. I don't know about that physically, but I do know that that does happen spiritually. That many times parents seek to leave things to their kids, spiritual things, wisdom things, but the kids squander it. I know better than you. Times have changed. You're antiquated and outdated. Anything that you have to say to me bears no reference. I I have nothing to to learn from you because I'm, I'm learning in the school of hard knocks and I'll get my education on the streets. Foolish. And we see in the wisdom of Solomon, even before the wisdom was granted to him, that he would listen to what his mother had to say. If you're under 30 in here, I hope you'll have the wisdom when you make decisions in your life, if you have access to your parents, to ask their opinion for the things that you're doing, who you're seeing and who you hope to marry. Hey, mom, dad, what do you think of this person? 
You've been around this world a lot longer than I have. What do you see that maybe I'm not seeing? So often kids unwilling to do that just because they don't want to hear what they think they might. Not the case with Solomon. And so she sits at his right hand, verse 20. She says, I desire one small petition of you. Do not refuse me. And she's, I'm sure, smiling ear to ear. And the king said to her, ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So she said, let Abishag, the Shunammite, be given to Adonijah, your brother, as wife. And King Solomon answered and said to his mother, now why do you ask Abishag, the Shunammite, for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, <coughs> for he is my brother. For him and for Abiathar, the priest, and for Joab, the son of Zeruiah, He knows exactly what's going on at this point. He wants to make a play at the throne. Now, a couple of things to consider. First of all, we read in the last chapter that Adonijah was an extremely attractive young man and that he was a person of influence and somewhat power. He could have whoever he wanted in Israel. Why does he want Abishag? Here's why. Because when a king would be overtaken by another king or would yield his throne to another, the first thing that the overtaking king would do was take his harem. That's what Absalom did. Remember, he took David's concubines and went up on the roof and had relations with them. It was a statement to Israel and to David that I'm the big kahuna. And what we see in Adonijah here is that he is going to make an attempt to divide the kingdom. He knows he can't take Judah or the throne of Solomon and David, but he can win the affection and influence of the other 10 tribes, something that will happen a generation after Solomon dies. But he's willing to divide Israel to get what he wants. And Solomon sees right through it. That's why he says, who's this for Abiathar and Joab and everything else? Give them everything, why don't you? And Bathsheba, I'm sure, knew the outcome of what this would be. Verse 23, so King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, may God do so to me and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David, my father, and who has established a house for me, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him uh, down that he died. Solomon had set parameters for Adonijah in the last chapter. It says that he had feared Solomon, and so he clung to the horns of the altar and pleaded for mercy. He said, please don't kill me. And Solomon said, I won't kill you. I'm not going to kill you. But here's, here's what I'm going to tell you. Go home. Get out of government. You no longer have a place in government in Israel, but go back to your farm and work there and live. He set parameters, and when Abi, uh, Adonijah crossed those parameters, Solomon enforced the sentence uh, that he was to die, and so he executes the sentence. We'll come back to that in a minute. Then Abiathar he deals with in verse 26. And so to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Ananoth, to your own fields, for you are deserving of death, but I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abiathar the priest from being priest to the Lord that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. Now do you remember way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel, Eli who was the priest at that time who raised up Samuel and nurtured him, he didn't deal with his sons. They were polluting the things of God, sleeping with the women at the temple and bringing shame upon the sacrifice. And so God spoke through Samuel to Eli and said, you're done and your descendants are done. I've raised up a different line of high priests. 
And so Abiathar is the last remaining remnant of the house of Eli who is still in the priesthood and now he's being removed. But Solomon is sparing him because of what he did for David and because he bore the ark. But notice that he set parameters. He said, go home to the farm, you're out of government. Now Abiathar is not going to cross that line again. As far as we know, he'll live out the rest of his days on the farm in peace. Now, number three, Joab, verse 28. So then news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar, just like Adonijah, remember? And King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord, and there he is by the altar. So Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, go and strike him down. Now, this to us is absolute proof that Joab was in on the Adonijah request for Abishag, you know, because Solomon knows it now, and Joab knows that Solomon knows it, and that's why he goes to the temple and and holds on to the horns. Otherwise, he's been living in peace. He has no reason to. It was a conspiracy. So, verse 30, Benaiah went to the tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, thus says the king, come out. (coughs) And he said, no, but I will die here. And Benaiah brought back word to the king, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. Now, I love this because, you know, I mean, how many times is real life like grammar school or kindergarten? Here's another one of those instances. Here's Joab. He knows he's in trouble. He knows he's going to die, and so he runs to the horns of the altar. It was a provision given by God if someone wanted to plead for mercy that they could go in there and they could cling to the horns of the altar and beg for mercy. If they were guilty of murder... They weren't allowed to do that. But here's Joab. He goes in and he basically says, I'm at safe. I'm at home base. I'm in church. Are you going to kill me in church? Seriously? And and, and here's Benaiah, this mighty man of God who's slaying lions and pits and all the thing. And and he's actually like taken by this. He's like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if I can kill you in church. Let me go find out, you know. And so he goes back and he tells the king what Joab said in verse 31. It says, then the king said to him, do as he has said and strike him down and bury him that you may take away from me uh, and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. So the Lord will return his blood on his head because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword. Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father David did not know about it. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck and killed him, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in his place over the army, and the king put Zadok the priest, uh, in the place now of Abiathar. Now, Joab had already crossed the line by killing those two innocent men, and therefore he got the sentence that was already coming to him, blood for blood. And now, Shimei, verse 36. And so the king sent, and he called for Shimei. Remember the one who threw rocks? And he said to him, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and do not go out from there anywhere. So he gives this guy grace, and he gives this guy space. He says, look, go to Jerusalem, build a house, and you stay there. You're on house arrest. You can stay in Jerusalem. You can move about the city. But, verse 37, for it shall be on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain you shall surely die 
Your blood shall be on your own head. It won't be uh, uh, me killing you. It will be you killing you because the terms of your life are that you stay in Jerusalem. And so don't violate. And so, verse 38, Shimei said to the king, the saying is good. As my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Now it happened. At the end of three years, the two slaves of Shimei ran away to Achish, the son of Maacah, the king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, look, your slaves are in Gath. So Shimei arose, saddled his donkey, and went to Achish at Gath to seek his slaves. And Shimei went and brought his slaves from Gath. And Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day that you go out and travel anywhere, that you shall surely die? And you said to me, The word that I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said, Moreover to Shimei, You know, as your heart acknowledges, all the wickedness that you did to my father David. Therefore, the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. Again, the third time now that we have seen Solomon set a boundary for an offender, giving mercy. And then once that boundary is crossed, then executing the sentence that was also set at the time that the boundary was given. And so Shimei violates, he also dies, and then the segment ends the same way that it started. He says, thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Same thing that he said back in verse 12. And this was the nature of that establishment. And so, uh, you know, what's going on here in this thing, in in, in the establishment of Solomon's kingdom and, and his sound authority that he has? What is it? And here's what it is is that Solomon was a man who understood the importance of the speedy execution of a sentence. This applies so much to us as parents as we deal with and cultivate our kids and try to, to raise them up. I think that the thing that makes me cringe the most is when I hear a parent here or there or anywhere else say to their children, one, two, two and a half, You've all heard it. You've all been there and you've done that. The reason that that bothers me so much is because what you're teaching your kids when you deal with them that way is that boundaries are optional or optimal, but they're not critical and non-negotiable. You're saying to them that it's okay to cross the boundary and then measure the response before you take another step, whether you go further over it or whether you decide to come back. Or you're teaching them that they can cross a boundary and as long as they return after the warning comes or before the warning escalates to a point where the decibels and the voice raise to the point where the vein is coming out of the head, then then it's okay that I'm able uh, to do this kind of thing. Now, it might not seem like such a big deal when our kids are little and they're just climbing on furniture or the countertop or taking a cookie or something from someone else, but there are lines that boundaries that will be set in their adulthood that if they cross them, the consequence will come automatically. I have never heard a judge look at an offender and say, one, two, or a policeman, 
as he's chasing someone down, one, you know, with his taser drawn or something. You know, it doesn't happen that way. Because when you cross boundaries, there are consequences. That's what happens, uh, you know, in that thing uh, and whatnot. Now, listen, when a young person uses a chemical substance, they go out with their friends, they go out drinking, or they go out and they use drugs, they've crossed a boundary. And in crossing that boundary, they can never uncross that boundary. Because that experience of going out and doing that has done something in them. It has sown something in them and given them an experience that they will never be able to let go of. And that will forever be the formation of a yoke that Satan will use then to try to bring them into bondage for the rest of their life. You get one shot with that. Once you do it, the experience is done and it has set a place in your heart. When a young person begins to experiment sexually, whether it's on their own or whether it's in a relationship with someone else, there are things that begin to happen inside of them. The power of that experience and sexual expression does something in them. And when that boundary is crossed and it's not confined to what God designed it to be in a marriage between a man and a woman forever, then the damage that that does is irreparable and it cannot be undone. There is soul damage that's done there. And there are lines that cannot be crossed or consequences cannot be reversed if those lines are crossed. And thus it's important for a child to understand before they get to that age and has those experiences that boundaries are important and that boundaries serve a purpose and that they are there for their good and not just to try to keep them from from doing it. So what's the solution? How do you teach a child not to cross boundaries? Here's how. You set boundaries for them with a sentence. And if they cross those boundaries, then you execute the sentence rapidly. We see that's what Solomon did here. In every case, it was the establishment of his authority as a good king. And he brought success and blessing upon Israel because of it. He set the boundary with the consequence. And then he brought forth the the consequence quickly when the violation happened. The Bible talks to us as parents about the rod. Now, I understand the controversial nature of that subject, but 10 times I could count in the Bible that God talks about the rod as the means of us disciplining or training or teaching our children. There's no other. God doesn't talk about time out. He never talks about losing privileges. He never talks about a a, a corner or being grounded or serving any other type of sentence. That is the parental prescription for how we're to deal with our children uh, as, um, as kids. And, and, and there's a reason for that. And here's what it is. Is that the rod does something in the life of a child that no other consequence can. Time out won't do this. Being grounded doesn't do it. Privileges lost doesn't do it. And those are these things. Number one is that it produces physical pain. Is that there is an unpleasant sting associated. Did, did, I, did you notice I said sting and not bruise or blow or bump, you know, there is an unpleasant sting associated with disobedience or crossing of the line. And that's important that we understand that. That does something in a child when they, when they feel that. There's also another aspect, and that's that there's psychological humiliation. Now, it's not ruining their self-esteem. It's wounding the pride that got them into trouble in the first place. And I've experienced that. I've seen the the humiliation of face that a child knows that they're about to encounter when going into that session, 
you know, where they're going to be dealt with is that there's a humiliation and they associate that humiliation with the crossing of the line. The third thing it produces is it produces shame over the deed that was done. There's a big difference in the world between being busted and being broken. Someone who's busted got caught and they're facing consequences because they got caught. But a person who's broken feels shame over the thing that they did. And there's something about the rod that brings that shame to the surface in the heart of a young person, is that they feel shame over what they've done. The fourth thing that the rod does is that it creates interaction. You have a chance to talk to the child after uh, that experience happens and re, uh, you know, retrace the steps. How, how did we get here? And why did this happen? Just like Solomon did with Shimei, it was the exact same thing. He said, didn't, didn't we set these parameters that on the day that you go out, you're choosing to do this to yourself? You chose this. I'm not choosing this for you. You chose this for you. This sentence was already set. So to then retrace that with the child and then to explain to them discipline, correction, forgiveness, mercy, you know, all, all, all of those things. And it's such an incredible opportunity to interact. On more than one occasion with my kids through the years, in fact, often, I have done this, uh, and I didn't think of this myself. I heard this from somewhere, just in case you'd be tempted to think I'm wise, you know. But when dealing with my kids in that way, I've whacked my leg hard. Now, when I deal with my kids, I don't, de- you know, deal with, with force, okay? It's to, to send a message and give a point. But when I did me, I left a mark. Whacked my leg hard when they were expecting it. The cringe face, and then they hear the sound, but they didn't feel anything. And it was me. And then I would sit him up on my lap and I would say, do you understand? That's what Jesus did for you. This is mercy. Jesus took the punishment. You know, because here's why. Because there's an opportunity to interact, to talk about mercy, to talk about correction, to talk about boundaries, to talk about consequences. Now it's a small thing. Later in life, it'll be a big thing. It might seem a small thing for you to just run away when we say to come. But what if you're running into the middle of a street where cars are going back and forth and we say, hey, stop, and you disobey us then? It could mean your life. And so the importance of the interaction, and then number five, and this is probably the biggest, is resolution. Is that when you deal with them that way, when it's over, it's over. The sin is gone. It's under the blood. There's no bad feelings between mom and child and and parent over what took place. It's been dealt with. It's been put away. It's gone. It's forever. And there's an amazing thing that happens in the face and in the disposition of a child at that point. They don't carry with them the guilt or the weight or the condemnation of it. They go on their way with a spring in their step and a change in their heart that you can see with your eyes. It's an incredible thing uh, that God does in that thing. And the outcome of it is that between the parent and the child, there's a respect, there's a fear that's a healthy fear, not based upon terror and torment, but upon reverence and respect. And there's education as you interact, and then there's love, because they understand, at least at some point in their life, the difficulty uh, of what that is. And so the Bible talks about that for us as parents, as dealing... Now, there are different situations, settings, different ages of kids, different things that, I mean, kids are so different, aren't they? They respond to different things. But here's the point. Lay the boundary, establish the sentence, and if the boundary is crossed, execute the sentence. And it's of the utmost importance. And we see that Solomon did it. It was the foundation of his authority uh, as a king. And so uh, we close. The worship team can come. But as we um, look at this chapter, we see four things 
tonight that will greatly enhance your child's future if God, by His grace, will allow you to invest it in them, that they be spiritually attached, connected with the people of God, scripturally admonished, grounded, rooted in spiritual truth, looking at life through the lens of God's Word, socially adjusted, understanding human nature and being uh, discerning concerning those that they'll interact with and um, live alongside of uh, during their time on this earth. And then the the fourth is to understand the importance of sound authority uh, as we raise them up in the love of Christ. And uh, there's a lot of characters in our study tonight and last week between Adonijah and Joab and Shimei and Solomon and Bathsheba and Benaiah and all the rest. I would pray that for each one of us, that all of us could relate most closely in this with Solomon. That we would be those that we'd be willing to both receive from those around us, as he did, and also able to give and to depend on God for all in between. Should we pray together? Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the truth that you give us in your word. Your desire for us, Lord, is that we would prosper and have good success in all that we do. And so we ask you, Lord, tonight that you would take the things that we've heard, maybe some things that struck our hearts, maybe areas of our life where we have nothing to impart because it's not true for us. We pray, Lord, whether it be for us or whether it be for us as parents and for our children, Lord, we ask that you would burn in us a desire to be in the very center of your will. Lord, your word says that we can do nothing on our own but that you'll give us all things that we need for life and godliness. And so tonight, Lord, we desire to listen to what your spirit would speak, to take the challenge, the exhortation, and allow you to work those adjustments and changes within our hearts. And so we give thanks to you, Lord, for your ever-ceaseless work that you're performing within us. And we thank you for what you do, for your way truly is wise and perfect. If you're a parent here tonight, I would just ask you to stand. And not, I'm not going to make you come forward and stand up. If you're a parent here, I just want to pray for you. Because this world is so crazy and changing so quickly. And it's almost impossible, I think, to hear a study like this or even to think about parenting and not feel a little bit inadequate or maybe feel even a little bit guilty. We need the grace of God as parents because they're people. They have their own will, their own nature. Someday they're going to leave and they're going to do their thing, whatever that is. So, Father, I just pray right now over your people. And I pray for myself. And, Lord, we ask tonight that you would equip and empower us as godly parents. That we would see them, Lord, not as a burden, not as a responsibility singularly, but that we'd see them as the future of our world and the future of your kingdom. And we pray, Father, that you would give us the ability to instill in them everything that we need to do what's going to make them succeed and prosper. And so I pray right now, Lord, for a fresh filling upon each one of these people. I pray, Father, that you'd fill each one of us with a supernatural love for each one of our kids. That tonight we'd be able to look into their faces and see them with a refreshment, Lord. To see them through your eyes. And we pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom the ability to understand them and to discern them and to teach them. So be with us, Father. And we pray for our kids, Lord, that you would protect them. We pray that you would hedge them in. 
We pray, Lord, that they would understand the love that you have for them and that your commandments are not grievous, Lord. We pray, Father, that the seeds of spiritual truth that have been sown in their heart would germinate and bear fruit, Lord, that they would love you all the days of their lives. We pray you'd protect them from the evil influence of bad friends, bad settings, bad groups, and Lord, that they would do well. And so help us, Lord, as a church to see the next generation and to do what we can. And tonight we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together.